approaching the very end of the prophecy of Malachi. And the title of the sermon is Final Imperative, Final Promise, Malachi 4, 4 to 6. But as I studied it a little bit more this week and dug in and started to write and uh, really um, pondering what it is I wanted to say and how important these verses are, I had to rewrite the sermon title. So the next slide is the correct sermon title. It's just part one. We're not going to get all the way through. We're not going to get all the way through uh, five and six. We're really just going to do Malachi 4 4 today. But the, the sermon's the same the final imperative and the final promise. Let me read the passage to us, and, uh, and then I will pray. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So we're just approaching the end. We aren't going to get there, but we're very close to the end of Malachi and the end of the Old Testament as a whole. And as a way of reminder, let's look back at where we've been. But let's move backward through the text in the direction of the beginning so we can familiarize ourselves again with Malachi's prophecy. In my most recent sermon on this uh, book, we discussed the coming regaining of distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And if you recall, um, that this is a theme that is very much at the forefront of people's minds in Malachi's day. They were feeling that things were upside down in their world. Since they were struggling as God's chosen people, and the pagan nations that were all around them, they appeared to be blessed, and so they felt like things were upside down. And recall that Malachi assured them that the distinction that they longed for would eventually come. But it wouldn't come until that day in which Yahweh prepares His treasured possession. And He comes to remove and to eliminate the arrogant and the evildoer as fire eliminates chaff. And remember that Malachi had himself identified those distinctly belonging to God already in in his day. And that was back earlier at the the end of chapter 3 when he mentioned those who feared the Lord and those who spoke to one another. And recall that God had a book of remembrance for those faithful who had esteemed His name. And these were the ones who clung to the promises of God. And they remained reverent toward Him. Even though circumstances tempted them to join in with the complaining and arrogant conversations that were going on all around them, they resisted that, and they continued in reverence toward the Lord. And Malachi had also confronted the people for their robbery of God, moving back further in the text. And the way they were robbing God is they were not bringing in the full tithe into the house of the Lord. And God, through Malachi, invited the people to test him by obeying the command to tithe and to see if he would not meet his promise to them, to open up the windows of heaven and to pour out for them an overflowing blessing. This is what he promised he would do for them. Back in chapter 3, at the beginning, Malachi switched gears in his prophecy, um, and he began to prophesy regarding the purifying and refining judgment that would be wrought by two messengers that would come in the future. Remember the two messengers were the preparing messenger and the purifying messenger. And recall that in those verses, we concluded that the fulfillment of these prophecies had received a down payment in the first coming of Christ. 
but that the final installment would not be delivered until the return of Christ at the end of history. And today our passage reveals, and it's actually next week, our passage reveals to us the precise identity of that, of that preparing messenger, and that was Elijah. So we move back a little further to the end of chapter 2 with what a sermon I described as the hinge pin verse of, of the prophecy. And it, it connects the rebuke portion and the confrontational portion of the text to the prophetic or the eschatological portion of the text. And this is the verse that spoke about wearying God with the complaint that the God of justice was nowhere to be found because the evil around them seemed like they were blessed. The evil people around them seemed blessed. So it looked like God thought evil was good and good was evil. Again, this upside-down theme in Malachi's prophecy. Prior to that, though, Malachi had called the people out of their lack of faithfulness to their wives. You remember there were some people in Israel who had divorced their wives and in, in favor of marrying daughters of a foreign god from the neighboring peoples. And before that, he chastised and he threatened the priests with humiliation because they refused to give honor to God's name and their terrible example for the people. And because they were showing partiality in administering justice to the community. He also had confronted the, the priests and the community for the completely dishonoring quality of the offerings that they were bringing to the altar for worship. You recall that Malachi said that they were bringing the sick and the lame and the blind and the sometimes stolen animals were being brought for sacrifice to the temple instead of the people's bests, which is what was required in the Mosaic law. And finally, you may recall the sermon from the beginning of the prophecy, Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5, the burden of God's love. Malachi began his prophecy with a declaration from God of his love for the people. And this was a declaration which the people disputed. And in fact, all throughout the prophecy, the people dispute God's rebukes and dispute God's overtures. Yet God unchangingly remains true to His promise never to consume His people, and He patiently tolerates all of their disrespect all throughout the prophecy. But He never lets them think, not even for a moment, that His tolerance is a license to continue in sin. It's always couched in warning. God warns and He rebukes His people because He loves them. Yet the sad theme of Malachi's prophecy is that by and large, God's people don't love Him back. So here we are today at the final three verses, the beginning of the final three verses of Malachi's prophecy. And he is his summarizing and his departing words, the ones that he saves for the last to be ever fresh on the people's minds. Where does he point them? Where does he direct them? Well, he directs them to the law and the prophets. To Moses, the lawgiver. And Elijah, the preeminent among the prophets. Alexander McLaren said the following about the Law and the Prophets. He says, Moses and Elijah are the two giant figures which dominate the history of Israel. Law and prophecy are the two forms in which God spoke to the fathers. In the New Testament, the, the Law and the Prophets appear together numerous times in 11 different verses. And an example of that is in Matthew 7.12, which is, we refer to as the Golden Rule. And it says there, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want to be treated, for this is the law and the prophets. 
later in Matthew, in chapter 22, verse 40, in speaking about the commandments to, to love God and love our neighbors, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So in the New Testament, when these two offices of, of law and prophets are, are mentioned, they're always portrayed in agreement with one another. You have the unchanging, written in stone, law of God, and then you have the, the generationally arising prophetic voice calling people back to that standard, that unchanging changing standard, whenever they would stray. This is the picture all throughout Scripture. God gives His law written in stone. People stray from that law. God raises up a prophetic voice to call them back to that standard. So let me give you an outline for how I'm going to deal with these these two items that we're talking about today, the final imperative and the final promise as we progress through the rest of this sermon. And it's also going to apply next week. This is how we're going to go through it. So as we try to interpret and explain this passage in Malachi, the imperative and the promise, I want want to draw attention to four things for each of us as as note takers. If you're a note taker, write these four things down. The first thing we want to look at is Malachi's audience. How would Malachi's audience have heard these verses, and why did Malachi conclude with these things? The second thing you should write down is we're going to look back in the Old Testament further. What was the significance of Moses and the law? What was the significance of Elijah and the prophet's impact on Israel's history? These are important questions to answer as we interpret. Number three, though, we're going to look forward into the New Testament. How did those around the time of Christ view these two figures? How did those around the time of Christ interpret this passage? Specifically the ones next week. That one's very, very important. And the fourth and final thing is what bearing do these figures have on us today? What bearing do these figures have on us today? So let's go to the text and take a look at the final imperative, which is verse 4. Malachi says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. What would this have meant? The first thing we're going to ask, what would this have meant for Malachi's audience? How would those in Malachi's day have understood what the prophet was urging them to do? Well, the first thing he says is remember. And thus far... Malachi's prophecy has just been a cataloging of the people's forgetfulness of the law, right? It's been a cataloging of their forgetfulness. This is actually the fifth time that Malachi uses the Hebrew word for law, Torah. It's the fifth time in his prophecy. And they're all from, the other four are all from chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. And that's in the midst of his rebuking the priests. And he says these things. He says, Malachi had taken their minds back to a time long ago when, when true instruction, or Torah, was in the mouth of the priests. He was drawing their attention back to times in the past when the priests actually had true instruction. The second, the second time he mentions it, he tells, tells them that the people should come to the priests, that the ideal is that the pre- people would come to the priests to receive true instruction, or Torah, from the lips of the priest. But instead, he contrasts the priests of his day to the priests of the past. And he says, instead, the priests have turned aside from the way. The priests have corrupted the covenant of Levi. These are the things he says. And they were thereby causing the people to to stumble by their instruction or their Torah. And he further says that the, the priests 
administration of instruction, or Torah, was being done with partiality. In other words, the priests of his day were playing favorites when they executed their judicial function, which was derived from the law, when they would help settle disputes amongst the people. And likely what was going on in Malachi's day is the priests were favoring those with means and with authority over those who Malachi had identified in chapter 3, verse 5 as being oppressed people in their society. And the oppressed in those days were the wage earners, he says, and the widows and the orphans and the aliens in their midst. So these are the four times he had, had mentioned the word Torah previously. And this is the only time in Malachi's prophecy that he couples the word Torah or law with Moses, my servant. He says, remember the law of Moses, my servant. And why would he say that? Why would he say it that way? Why would he wait until now to couple that word law with Moses? Well, I think because the law which was being taught and administered in Malachi's day was a different law than the one that God gave through Moses. It was a devolved form or a deformed, altered, perverted or poorly interpreted version of the true law. It was a corrupted version of the law of the priests in Malachi's day. The true law, the law of Moses, my servant, had been forgotten. So Malachi urges their remembrance of that that genuine first edition, which they needed so desperately to heal their community. And Malachi gives them a further clue as to what the law was he was referring referring them to so that he would be crystal clear to them. He says, the statutes. Remember the law of Moses, my servants, even the statutes and the ordinances. And this this coupling of statutes and ordinances in the Hebrew harkens back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, especially the book of Deuteronomy. You actually see that coupling of those two Hebrew words all throughout the Old Testament. But you see it a lot in Deuteronomy. So... um, like in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules. That's the same Hebrew phrase. That I'm teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And then Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8, it says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, that same phrase that's in Malachi, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God? whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So again, Malachi is is telling them to go back to the beginning. Back to Moses. Back to that second or deutero giving of the law. He's referring in their minds back to the law from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was given at the end of Moses' life the end of his governance of Israel. After Deuteronomy comes Joshua, right? The end of Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death and Joshua's ascension. Deuteronomy is about the end of Moses' life. But it's the exact same law 
which Moses gave at the beginning of his leadership of Israel. So Malachi points his audience even further back with the next little phrase. He says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Now Horeb is important here. It's, it's simply another name, the one used most often in Deuteronomy to refer to Mount Sinai. This is the origin of the law. Malachi is drawing his audience's attention back to the very beginning of the law. And we're going to follow him there. We're going to kind of go back to that scene, if you will, as we move forward in the sermon. And we're going to look back to when the law was given to Moses and the people. So interestingly, in in this past week, earlier on, I was reading to the kids over breakfast, and I read to them from a a multi-volume set of Bible stories. And it's this right here. I brought it up here. It's by Arthur S. Maxwell. There's like 10 or 11 versions, 10 or 11 volumes. Thank you. Yes, this is the second one. And so we were reading through this and interestingly, we got to um, when the law was given at Mount Sinai. And I thought, oh, how fitting, how interesting, how one of those instances of God's, what seems like a coincidental timing it looks to me like, oh, this is divine appointment. And so, now these books are very old. They were first published in 1953. So some of the pictures in them and the illustrations and things like that, especially as they portray uh, kids, modern kids, they're very dated. But they're good. I like, I like reading them to my kids. They're, they're written for a, a, a time when kids could handle more words and less pictures. So there's not as many pictures as you would think, and there's a whole lot of words, and sometimes the kids are like, Dad, this takes forever. But we went through the account of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in this Bible this week. And I want to read a quote to you from J.K. Wright. He reminds us that the law came straight from God to man. And I think we forget this oftentimes, but he says, the law came straight from God to man. Man was not left to discover or reason it out for himself. The law is not a constitution agreed upon among men for self-government. This same law was given of God to Moses in Horeb. And I think we often forget the majestic, the awe-inspiring, the fearful and the glorious scene that unfolded at Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus 19 to 20. If you feel like it later on this afternoon, read Exodus 19 to 20 again and go back to that scene in your mind's eye. But in Exodus 19, verse 9, it says this that the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And God then told Moses to have the people consecrate themselves by washing their clothes and their bodies. Spend three days washing. Stay away from women is another thing he said. I'm not sure why I put that in there. But anyway, he said, stay away from women. So they would prepare themselves to meet God. This time was different. This time was different. They needed to be consecrated this time because God himself was going to speak directly to the people. Not just through Moses as an intermediary. And as the stage was set with the quaking, smoking mountain the thunder and and the lightning that rained down, the increasing volume of the sound of heavenly trumpets, all of these things are mentioned as imagery in, in the account in Exodus. 
And the voice of God roared out. And what did God speak? What did God speak when he actually spoke back in Exodus? It's the Ten Commandments. He spoke the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20. I I don't think we often recognize this, how they were first given, how those Ten Commandments were first given. We tend to think that they were given first on those stone tablets that Moses got on the top of the mountain, but that's not so. They were first given verbally by the very voice of God in the hearing of the entire mass of Israelites. The whole nation of over a million people heard the very voice of God speak the Ten Commandments. That's the first time that they would have all heard God speak. It wasn't until later that God gave Moses the written copy, the ones that were inscribed on tablets of stone. And even then, it was by the very finger of God, as Exodus 31.18 tells us. It wasn't Moses with a hammer and chisel, chiseling those commandments out on stone. It was God's own finger, it says, probably speaking anthropomorphically. But in some way, God etched that onto the stone himself and gave it to Moses. And one of the reasons that God spoke directly to the people was so that they could understand that Moses wasn't joking when he said he'd he'd spoken to God. Moses wasn't joking when he said, God told me to tell you this. God spoke the Ten Commandments first so that they could all hear, and so that they would also know that these commandments came directly from him, and that when Moses speaks, you listen to Moses because he's not joking. You've heard my own voice tell you this. It was such a fearsome scene. It was such a staggering scene for the Israelites. Immediately after the Ten Commandments were given, the people were so afraid that they told Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but please don't let God speak to us or we'll die. And listen to how Moses responded to that. He said, don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. God gave him a little PTSD on that day. It horrified them when they stood at the edge of that mountain and they saw the glory of God and they heard that commanding voice. They were traumatized. that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Only if the fear of Him had remained with them. Over the many generations since that monumental event, the fear of Him had worn off. And Malachi mentions Horeb in this prophecy so that a portion of that fear might return to the people who had forgotten the law of Moses. Remember the law of Moses, he says. Remember the statutes and ordinances. Remember Horeb. Go back to that genuine first edition. So let's move on. The third thing. How were Moses and the law treated in the New Testament? Let's start with John 1.17. It says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And we're tempted oftentimes to to interpret those two phrases as in conflict with one another or as stating something. You get something with Jesus that you didn't get in the Old Testament. And that's not really how it ought to be interpreted. 
Um, because it's very important to note the, the, the word realized in that verse. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. It's not as if grace and truth were absent from the law given through Moses. They were there. They were there conceptually. They were there in, in promise form. In fact, the very giving of the law itself was an act of grace to God. He spoke to His people because He, he loved His people. He loved them enough to warn, him, warn them that these are my standards. You need to adhere to them. So it's not as if grace and truth weren't in the law. Deuteronomy 32, 46-7 says this, Take to heart all the words which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And Deuteronomy 5.33 says, You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you. God gave the law so that they could live by the law. His commandments followed led to life. Led to well-being. Deuteronomy 8.3 he humbled you and he let you be hungry and he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. The law proceeded out of the mouth of the Lord and it's meant for our life. So the giving of the law itself was an expression of God's truth and grace to his people. But the full reality or realization of that truth and grace did not come ultimately until Jesus came. In a sense, He was grace and truth personified. I think it's also very important to note what marks the early portion of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Pastor Eddie has just preached an excellent sermon in the midst of an ongoing series on the Sermon of the Mount, which is in Matthew 5-7. through And in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 5, Jesus says this. This is right after the Beatitudes, right at the beginning of that Sermon on the Mount, early in Jesus' ministry. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. There's that law and prophets used again in tandem. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it certainly doesn't appear that Jesus would disagree with Malachi's imperative to remember the law of Moses. Not in the least. He's reiterating what Malachi said. And as as Pastor Reddy preached last week, The law featured prominently in the teaching of the Jews in Jesus' day. And just like in Malachi's day, the version of the law taught in Jesus' day was a deformed and a perverted one that had deviated significantly from that genuine first edition that was given at Sinai. The scribes and the Pharisees, you have that school of thought. They taught a legalistic version that emphasized strict adherence to Sabbath-keeping and tithing. Yet they neglected the weightier matters of the law, Matthew 23, 23. And they also heavily relied on the traditions of rabbinical interpretations of the law. And they would impose things on the people of God that God himself never intended in his law. 
And then you have another sect in the Jewish, Jewish culture of the day, the Sadducees. And they taught a, a liberalized version of the law that negated the concept of an eternal destiny and a resurrection, and they minimized God's sovereignty. And if you read through Josephus, he talks about the word fate a lot when he talks about the Sadducees. <clears throat> and it's, it's sort of equivalent to God's sovereignty. They minimized God's sovereignty and they elevated mankind and his choices in determining the course of man's life. So these were the people in Jesus' day teaching the law. The law was a, an important feature in the teaching of Jesus' day. And Jesus himself, just like Malachi, pointed people back to the importance of the law. What about Paul? What about the apostles? How did they treat the law? I think Paul would also agree with Jesus, stating that the, the Christian's posture toward the law, at least its, its moral aspects for the Gentiles, its moral aspects, not necessarily the ceremonial or the religious aspects, ought to be obeyed. Look what Paul says in Romans 3.31. He says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law, Paul says. In other words, we keep the law. It's sad to me that so many pastors in our day want to discard the Old Testament. And they only want to preach from the New Testament. And there's so much richness in the Old Testament that informs and fleshes out what we have in the New Testament that if we don't treasure what's in the Old, we're missing out in a big way. And shame on us if we don't teach the Old Testament too. You know, J.K. Wright, I quoted him earlier, he wrote in a book called The Biblical Illustrator a quote about the relationship between the gospel and the law. And I thought it was so well done, I thought I would just read it to you. It says this, The gospel did not destroy the law. It did not lower its standards. It was not intended as an apology for its severity. The gospel honors the law, declaring that it is holy, just, and good. The law could not pardon a transgression. Therefore, it could not give life and, and salvation to guilty sinners. It gave the knowledge of sin, measured the extent of man's weakness, and the depth of his fall. Thus, it prepared for the exhibition of pardoning mercy and saving grace by showing the necessity for it. I thought that was very good. Further, he says, Through Christ Jesus come the renewal of man's nature and the gift of life and power. Man's nature is caused to love and delight in and are enabled to obey the law through Jesus. The crown and the glory of the gospel come to each man when the law of God is enthroned in his heart and manifested in his life and conduct. It is said that in the ancient times, some laws were put into verse so that the people might learn to sing them. Through the grace and through the Spirit of Christ, God's law becomes poetry to us and His statutes a song. I thought that's so true. And Paul talks about this as, as he wrestles with the law is good, but when I read the law, I find only death. I find only condemnation because I'm a sinner in a world of sinners. But what does Christ do when He redeems us? He saves us by His blood. He forgives us of all of our infractions against the law, and He gives us a new heart. One that looks back to the law and says, this is love. This is life too. 
We learn to love the law because we love the lawgiver. And we love the lawgiver because he gave himself for us. So how does this bear on us today? The fourth and final thing. And I think it has a lot of bearing on us today. This admonition to remember the law of Moses that was given at Horeb, the statutes and the ordinances. Because today we live in a very degraded culture. Our culture today is is bereft of the law's influence. If I could go back to a, a moment to the the kids' book from the 50s, the kids' Bible book from the 50s. I took a little picture of the kids that were in there. If you wouldn't mind showing that for us. Look at that. Back in the 50s. They're all well-groomed, and they've got a nice little tie on. They're very attentive and quiet and well-behaved, respectful kids. Look at that. (sighs) Now look at the next picture. Yeah, look, look at the next picture. I mean, see, do I need to say anything else? I mean, we live in a degraded culture. I... Unkempt, disheveled, hairbrush protesters. Um, I told them that I was going to do that. I, just, I, I didn't just spring that on them. I'm like, guys, I'm going to use you as a little joke today. So, But we live in a degraded culture, and people who... Uh, grew up back in the era when this was written, they can say, oh my goodness, things are so different. Things are so different. You know, I think of certain things that have happened in our culture, the degradation of our culture, and so much of it goes back to the elimination of prayer from school, the elimination of reading the scriptures to kids in school, um, the, the, the mad rush to eliminate any references to God or the Bible from our our, our, our political and our civic life and just to relegate it to our sanctuaries on Sunday morning. I think about that. So much of that has contributed to the degradation of our culture. On July 31st, 2001, then Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, Roy Moore, installed a monument of the Ten Commandments in the rotunda of the state courthouse. And Moore was quoted as saying that day, To restore morality, we must first recognize the source from which all morality springs. Moore had been sworn in earlier that year in January, and he made a pledge that day that God's law will be publicly acknowledged in our court. I don't know about you, but I pray that if the Lord tarries, he floods us with more judges like that. Well, in October of that year, lawsuits were filed against the monument. And by November 18th, the next year, 2002, U.S. District Judge Myron Thompson of Montgomery, Alabama, ordered the monument removed for violating the U.S. Constitution's ban on government establishment of religion. In his his ruling, he cited that the Ten Commandments monument, viewed alone or in the context of its history, placement, and location, has the primary effect of endorsing religion. An appeal was made by Moore to the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and on July 1st, 2003, the three-judge panel unanimously rejected Moore's appeal, stating that every government building could be topped with a cross or a menorah or a statue of Buddha, depending on the view of the officials with authority over the premises. So they ordered him to remove it, and Moore refused to remove the monument. 
And because he took that stand, he was ultimately removed from his position as chief justice by the Alabama court of the judiciary. Get it out of here. Get it out of here. That's what our culture says about the law of God. Catherine Miller, Millard is the founder of a tourism agency called Christian Heritage Tours. And uh, she remarks in an article on religionnews.com from February 2005 that on the building that houses the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, there are eight separate carvings of Moses that ring the Great Hall ceiling in the U.S. Supreme Court building. Are you aware of this? You ever visited that? Tablets representing the Ten Commandments can be found carved in the oak courtroom doors, on the support frame of the courtroom's bronze gate, and in the library woodwork. The Ten Commandments can be seen in all of those places. And directly above the Chief Justice's head in the courtroom, in the center of a 40-foot-long Spanish marble carving, is a tablet displaying Roman numerals 1 through 10. Now, Catherine Millard saved a copy of a 1975 Supreme Court guidebook. And in that guidebook, it specifically refers to the sculpture as being of the Ten Commandments. They're trying to say now, no, it refers to the Ten ten Amendments, the first Ten Amendments. (sighs) Come on. Get it out, they're saying. It's etched in stone, but get it out. Let me switch gears just a little bit. Each year there is a, there are, there's probably a number of them, but there's one in particular that I, I, I found as I was doing some research on this. Being a person who was in the finance realm, um, was familiar with um, uh, surveys that would come out or reports that would come out that would measure the economic freedom of certain countries in the West. And it would rank the countries, like which one has the most economic freedom, which one has the least economic freedom. And uh, the Fraser Institute publishes an annual economic freedom of the world report. And there's an article on their website from October 2018 that states that the report measures the ability of individuals to make their own economic decisions by analyzing the policies and institutions of 162 countries and territories, government regulation, freedom to trade internationally, size of government, the legal system and property rights, and government spending and taxation. It looks at all of these things and analyzes them. And the reason they do all of this, and the reason they're, they're trying to rank and, 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 and determine a, an economy's economic freedom or, or a nation's economic freedom is because economists recognize a strong correlation between economic freedom and human flourishing. Where people are free economically, they have a free economy, they tend to flourish more. There was an article on the Fraser Institute's website from just last month that indicates that some 1,300 peer-reviewed journal articles on economics have cited their 2022 annual report alone. And over 700 of those peer-reviewed articles looked at the impact of economic freedom on the human condition. The positive outcomes they wanted to see were increased prosperity, human rights, social development, those type of things. Negative outcomes they were looking for were poverty, 
Conflict like war, social unrest, reduced life expectancy. These are the things that they're looking at and they're measuring. But there are two crucial aspects looked at to gauge a nation's economic freedom, according to the Fraser Institute. And they are these two. The size of the government, and the second one is the rule of law. According to that 2008 article on this subject, it says, large governments reduce space for free exchange among citizens. Restrictions on free trade and unnecessarily or uncertain regulations limit economic freedom, as does the lack of sound money, which erodes property value. And hear this. This is what it says. I'm quoting it. And most importantly, the least economically free countries embrace a weak or biased rule of law, which allows governments and greedy elites to attack the the economic freedom of the weak, the poor, and the unpopular. So in other words, according to most economists... Without the rule of law in a society, the likelihood of human flourishing, the likelihood of human freedom and prosperity is greatly diminished without the rule of law. It is, according to this article, the most important factor to consider. The rule of law. J.K. Wright again from the Biblical Illustrator wrote this, It is absolutely certain that harmony with the will of God is essential to man's happiness. Holiness and happiness, holiness and happiness are in their very nature closely and inseparably linked together. One of the distinctives of the history of Western civilization is that in early years, societies and their laws were arranged in such a way so as to be in harmony with their religious laws. And the underpinning religion of the West is and always has been Christianity. This was especially true in America's founding as well. The Bible literally created the framework in which you live. Do you recognize that? The Bible literally created the framework in which you live in this country and in this society. And the vast majority of the generations alive today don't have any clue that this is the case. The benefits of a society structured under the rule of law that creates freedom and opportunity and prosperity are almost completely taken for granted today. And we move forward today not realizing how tenuous and perilous our situation is as our society now not only rejects the law of God, but it increasingly mocks it and persecutes those who still want to adhere to it. In America, we've cut off the branch in which we're sitting and we're plummeting to the ground for a crash landing as a result. Our nation could stand to tremble again like Israel did at the quaking mountain of Horeb. Ought we not to pray prayers of repentance as God's people for our own sometimes cavalier attitude towards God's law? And some of us say, I hear this a lot, well, of course these standards are applicable to us as Christians, but it's not our place to judge those outside of the church for not living according to these standards. I hear that all the time. I hear this line of reasoning so frequently, but is it true? Let me share a scripture with you. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, I think it speaks mightily to that that sentence. Paul says this as he's writing to Timothy, we know that the law is good 
if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. If I'm reading this correctly, Paul is saying that part of what the gospel compels us to share with others is that they will be accountable to God for ignoring His righteous law. And that there is rescue from the penalty of that law only through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. This is what the gospel compels us to share. So how does the law bear upon us today? Could it be that this disdain for God's law in our broader culture is in some degree caused by the fact that God's people have been so soft in espousing and proclaiming its truth? Not just our truth, but the truth. A truth as universal as gravity, applicable to all. That's what God's law is. And I want to leave you with one final question as we wrap up today. That's sort of a preview for next week related to how does the law bear on us today. And I ask this, by what law will Christ reign when He comes to establish His kingdom on this earth for a thousand years? Did He give us an imperfect one to begin with? When He comes to reign, He will reign with the law of Moses. But in the meantime, before that judgment falls, the Lord sends prophets and He sends preachers to call people back to the remembrance of that law and to warn them that a great and terrible day is coming. But more on that next week. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for Your Word to us. Father, we thank You for the truth and the grace that came at Mount Sinai when You spoke Your law to Your people. And Father, we thank You for those who faithfully preserved that law for us for many generations in the future. And Father, we thank You most of all for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who personified grace and truth. And Father, made a way of escape for us who have cast aside Your law and treated it as unimportant and broken Your will and sinned against You, Lord God. Father, we come humbly before You. We thank You for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand, if you will, for the benediction. I thought appropriate today, a good benediction would be from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be as, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Depart in His peace and may we grow to love God's law as we love the one who gave us the law, the Lord Jesus. Depart in His peace. Amen.